Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for downloading this podcast of Talk Politics with me, Alexis Conran, here on Talk Radio. This week, I was joined by Associate Director at the Entrepreneurs Network and columnist at City AM, Annabelle Denham. Luke Hilliard also joined us, Director at the High Pay Centre. Uh, there was plenty to talk about. We talked about uh, momentum. We talked about BBC bias, sovereignty, quite a few highlights of the show included in this podcast. Also, rather... Um, heated debate on lie detector tests with Sir David Amos. Enjoy. Is the Labour Party actually doing any reflecting or are the same people saying the same things? Well, I think there isn't a lot of reflection going on. I think, you know, whatever Len McCluskey has said, I think most people accept that um, all the things you just talked about were factors in why um, why Labour lost. I, th- I think um, yeah, the media's treatment of Jeremy Corbyn was extraordinarily hostile mm-hmm. uh, and, in my mind, very unfair for somebody, you know, who... Would you say that Ed Miliband's treatment was any different? Um, probably not, no. Right. Not, not sort of significant. So would you say that the Labour Party so, should have been prepared yep. in choosing their next leader to make sure that actually they don't give enough uh, uh, opportunities for the mainstream media to take that leader down? Well, I think much of the mainstream media is terribly malign and in order to win their support, you've got to be mm. quite a malign figure. So... Um, uh, le- choosing the, the you know the uh, the leader on the basis of who the Sun or the Daily Mail is going to like is gonna um, is not a good idea because anyone with sort of progressive values who wants to help uh, you know working people those at the bottom and in, and in the middle uh, you know do more to combat climate change curb corporate power probably isn't gonna win favor with the uh, with the mail or the Sun Corbyn that actually means- took um, particular exception to his treatment by the BBC which is obviously our national broadcaster and non-partisan yeah I mean again I don't think the the sort of BBC's coverage of the uh, general election was was brilliant either well this uh, is interesting think, though, I, Luke, think... isn't it because because you say that being on the on the left side mm-hmm. let's say I can bring out for you I can even op- open our box of uh, trolls here uh, who, who contact the radio station mm-hmm. sometimes who are from the right side mm-hmm. who will tell you exactly the same thing that the BBC's coverage of the general election was uh, nothing short of the um, middle class, metropolitan, liberal elite, Ramonas. I mean, you, you name all the cliches, they're in there. So how can it, you know, maybe the BBC got it absolutely right by upsetting both sides. I don't think um, uh, getting criticism from both sides equates to sort of doing a good job. But I, I mean, I think the sort of, yeah, the, the main issue with... Um, uh, Labour and the media was more with the sort of tabloid press than with the, the BBC. But, um, you know, I, I was saying I think Corbyn's treatment by the, the, the media was very unfair. But I was going to go on and say that that's not at all the only reason why Labour lost. I think there were many factors 
such as uh, those you you know you outlined. Brexit was another factor. Corbyn's failings as a leader were a huge factor. I think the manifesto, uh, while as you say, while it was individual, while individual policies might have been individually popular, uh, as a sort of coherent strategy, wasn't necessarily um, you know well well received. Vast majority of Labour Party members were pro-Remain, categorically pro-Remain, not ambiguously pro-Remain. Mm. But actually, Len McCluskey decided that that's not the stance that he wanted, and he prevented the party from taking a pro-Remain stance. Now, who knows what might have happened had the party... But he would have not been ambiguous. But this whole idea that you've given the party back to its members, it's just nonsense. It never happened. Well, I mean, that's a supremely uh, simplistic take on Len <laughs> McCluskey's part. Um, and, um, that's me, not, not one, not, Simplistic. Not, not one I'd, uh, not one, um, I'd endorse. But sort of pivoting to Rebecca Long-Bailey, yeah. I, I completely agree with Annabelle. I think Lisa Nandy's been by far the most impressive uh, candidate in the leadership race so far. I get a, uh, to vote in the in the election. I haven't decided who I'm going to go for yet, but I think least leaning towards Lisa Nandy. But I think it's you know it, it, it's it's sort of hugely sort of patronising and misconceived to think of um, Rebecca Long Bailey as some kind of puppet of Corbyn or or Len McCluskey. She, I mean, she's of a completely di- different generation from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Why doesn't she disassociate herself from the same people who were around the Corbyn leadership? If she's her own person. Because Len McCluskey's the leader of a trade union with 1.2 million Mm. members representing... Uh, working people up and uh, up and down the country, and he's democratically elected. But John so Lusman doesn't, think, doesn't have he, to run her campaign. She, think, if she's in charge of her own campaign, right, she can choose her own campaign you, person that doesn't have to be the leader of Momentum. But he's been, you know, he's been proved Momentum is a successful organisation. It's infused a lot of people, and, she, and he's got a track it's record. Back to leader getting, that lost getting, two general getting, elections, well, one won, of them catastrophically, but won two leadership elections, which is what she's going to do. I you think can win be, the leadership election more, and not be, get into power. What's the point of that? But then you can you can win the leadership election. You don't have to have the same person run your um, general election campaign. And again, I'm a I'm a momentum member, and I don't sort of recognise this characterisation of uh, uh, of momentum as this sort of sinister organisation. I think the the worst thing you can say about people who are momentum members is they're possibly slightly naive. It's mainly young people. Uh, who want to live in a slightly fairer, more equal society uh, and to do something about climate change. It's but do you, the, you appreciate that, that, that a lot of this has to do with perception? A sure. lot of it has to do with perception, not around but that just Labour you members. Can't be, that doesn't mean you can't say when perceptions are extremely unfair. Mm-hmm. And in Rebecca Long-Bailey's case, and as I say, I'm probably not going to vote for her as leader, but the idea that she's a sort of puppet of uh, of Corbyn and Landsman and uh, Len McCluskey or whatever... Is um, is totally false and slightly sort of weird and misogynistic. Then, it denies I mean, her her own she, agency. She was the, as you say, she was the sort of shadow BE's secretary and came mm. up with what I think are a lot of uh, good uh, policy ideas and not that sort of radical left, common to what you see in other North European countries, and also very common to what was in the Liberal Democrat manifesto. I mean, it doesn't feel like we've got control of our money, our laws, and our borders when the US are saying, look, if you do a deal with Huawei you know, your trade deal is going to be compromised. That doesn't feel to me as, oh, hey, we're, we've entered the global market and we can do as we please, Luke. Yeah, and I mean, you know, what's the most sort of sovereign country? It's like North Korea, probably, which is completely, <laughs> uh, you know, isolated from every other economy and mm. does exactly as it pleases. 
is that a great place to live or a great model for the UK? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that it is. I think you're completely right that um, you know, the economies are interconnected now, and whether we're in the EU or we're not, um, we're going to be shaped by decisions that other our lives in this country are going to be shaped by decisions that, um, that other countries take. And within the EU, uh, we have the opportunity, obviously we take laws from Brussels, but we also shape them. I mean, I, I do a lot of work on sort of sustainable finance, for example, uh, and, you know, um, green bonds, um, you know, making uh, the city greener and whatnot. And the, the sort of EU's working group on that the, uh, is completely dominated by people mm. based in London. So it's not just the case uh, that being in the EU means we take laws from Brussels, but it also means we in the UK shape the regulations uh, for that affect a market of hundreds of millions of people. And then the US and China, to a certain extent, take mm. their cues from what Europe is doing. So in many ways, we are going to be much less powerful uh, as a result of coming out of the EU. But our power in the EU is so diluted. I mean, we're one of nearly 30 member states. So, yes, we have a seat at the table, but it's a very large table. And mm. the argument... I, I, I can see both sides. Do you want to be part mm. of a much larger market that wields a lot of influence globally? Or do you want to be a kind of mid-sized nation, but be able to be sovereign and strike deals? But I also think we have very disproportionate power within the EU. And I mean, I'm sure you've sort of seen this, like working in financial services, that um, all the sort of big decisions on financial regulation are very much shaped by the the city of London and people working there. And, um, you know, that that influence over the entire EU market is going to be lost when we when we leave. And we're going to find that we have much less clout when we're negotiating with America and China and other countries, uh, because, we, you know, we're, you know, in terms of sort of parity, we're a, a pinprick to them, mm. whereas um, uh, the EU is, you know, the, the, the biggest trading bloc in the world. I, I don't want to uh, uh, rehash uh, old arguments, uh, but I think mm. it is worth saying, this, this was a paper published by uh, Jim Grace, um, the number of laws since 1996 to 2014 he looked at, um, there was a total of uh, 34,177 laws that were sort of ratified uh, in that period. Um, does anybody want to have a guess at uh, how the percentage of laws that uh, the EU uh, over uh, overrides? There was an override from the EU, so the UK voted no, but we were overridden. Does anybody want to I guess? Just, I suspect it's pretty tiny. but How tiny? Annabelle? 1%. I, I mean, we have been told for yeah. ages that we need to take back control of our laws. Mm. Take back control of what percentage that we didn't have, do you think? Uh, yeah, 5%. I don't know. Yeah. Perhaps it's, not even as much as that. It's 0.21. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, that's this whole thing has happened because it's, it's a total number uh, of uh, 0.21. Uh, let's bring on our, our guest. Uh, welcome to the show, Gareth Thomas, Labour MP for Harrow West. Labour suffered its worst defeat since 1935. By 2024, um, since 1979, Labour will only have been in power for 13 years. All of those, un all of the elections that they won were won by Tony Blair, who has himself said that Labour needs to come back to reality and stop sort of living in a fantasy world. So I'm interested to know how you envisage anybody managing to win the leadership but then go on to win an election when the two things seem to be at odds with one another and that 
to win the leadership, you've got to appeal to, fi- to the 500,000 Labour Party members who are themselves, off, by and large, on the hard left, whereas to win a general election, a lot of the policies you've talked about are more centrist. But another thing, just on the, off the back of you saying that you might back Keir Starmer, I'd be really interested to know how you feel the impact of the optics of that will be, because... Of course, you've got all these women in the race and we could see a man win. This is the Labour Party. This is a party that is supposed to be fighting for equality. So how's it going to look if you back another man and the party still hasn't had a female leader? Well, there's um, uh, a couple of questions there. I mean, on the um, the issue of winning the membership and then persuading the, uh, persuading the country, I think a lot of members are... Um, you know, are, are desperate to see Labour as a as a credible force. I think there was a, an awful lot of um, people who were, for example, campaigning with with me and in a, one of the target seats uh, next door in uh, in Harrow East and Watford, who were you know absolutely gutted um, that we did uh, that. We not only did we not win those target seats, but that we did as badly across the rest of the country as we did. And and I, from the conversations I have with many members. Um, they do. They do get the need for for change. It's true there are, um, you know, in particularly in momentum, a, a group of people who just want to carry on as we are, um, and you know that is simply not credible, um, given mm. the scale of, de- of defeats we, we've had. And it's the responsibility, I think, of people like me to um, to try and hammer home that that message. And for a new leader, um, you know, they will have to take the Labour Party on a journey. Um, to to recognise how you put a an election election winning coalition back back together in the way that um, uh, Tony uh, Tony Blair did um, so successfully. On your point about a woman versus a man as leader, I mean I think it is a, a significant step forward that Labour has got um, four out of its five um, leadership candidates who are uh, who are women. I, I nominated. Uh, a woman, a very strong woman, um, to uh, to get into the race and to be uh, to be leader. Uh, I still hope she can win, but um, that's looking more challenging. And you know, then I, I look at the two front runners, and, and you have to make a choice as to who is most likely um, to, to 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 make the difficult choices that um, Labour needs uh, to be made if we're going to win. And uh, and for me, um, if it's not going to be Emily, then then I, I want it to be Keir Starmer. Giving a uh terrorists before they are released or people who have been arrested for terrorism lie detector tests in order to find out whether they have abandoned their terrorist ways and whether they've been rehabilitated. Is that decision based on any factual evidence whatsoever? I think it's a very good idea. Mm -hmm. Lie detector tests are used for many things and it seems to me when you're dealing with something as serious as uh, terrorism why should any innocent person object to taking a lie detector test? Does it worry you I, at I all? Know. Does it worry you at all that lie detector tests can be, um, for starters, easily beaten? And second of all, uh, as an example, no lie detector test is ever admissible in a court of law anywhere in the world. Does it? Does it? Does that make you think uh, that perhaps they're not as reliable as you imagine them to be? Well, look. I'm not suggesting that we do the lie detector test such as you used to see on the Jeremy Carl show. But that is what a lie detector test is, sir. Well, sorry, uh, David. I, 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 I think there are any variety of lie detector tests. Mm. And if the government were going to, if the Home Office were going to embark upon this, 
they would uh, adopt the most rigorous lie detector. There is only but one I, I, version of a lie detector test, Sir David, and the Supreme Court in the United States in 1998 deemed that a lie detector test, getting information out of a suspect, is no more reliable than a toss of a coin. Now, why would you want to make a decision of whether or not to release a terrorist or, indeed, a paedophile, uh, they are subjected to lie detector tests, on the toss of a coin? I don't think for one moment is suggesting that the decision would just be made on the outcome of a lie detector But test. why involve a lie detector test when we know that they are not admissible in court? They're as reliable as tossing a coin. And I say all this to you, Sir David, as someone who has sat a lie detector test and beaten it. Well, look, I... I have no idea the circumstances of your taking this lie detector test. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I do not think that Pretty Patel would have said what she is reported to have said without good evidence from her officials in the Home Office. And no doubt, if they are going to embark upon this plan, we will hear much greater detail about how rigorous it would be. But I go back to the original thing I said. Why would any innocent person refuse to take a lie detector test. I don't understand that at all. But that goes back to arguments that are, if you've got nothing to hide, then why not let the government just read all your emails and look at, search all your internet history? It's got to do with privacy. It also has to do, and I'll tell you why innocent people don't want to take lie detector tests, is because they don't work. And if you're innocent, you might be found guilty because the examiner might misread your lie detector test. And plenty of people have been through that process where they've taken a lie detector test, they've been innocent, but been found guilty because the examiner didn't do their job properly. Um, I, I just put it to you that you are a supporter of Priti Patel's policy, but it, it's quite clear to me it's not based on any factual evidence. And from what you've told me, I don't think you, Sir David, with all due respect, understand how lie detector tests work, and yet you are willing to let decisions be based on something that's been categorically proved to be no more than a hoax or a scam. Well, you're not giving me detailed evidence for the assertions that you're making. Mm -hmm. I'm simply responding to something that so he has, is purported to have said. So as someone, I, who, I as someone who's beaten one personally, I did it for, you can check it out, it's online, I beat it on a, a, a TV show for the Discovery Channel, it was called Man vs. Expert. The examiner was a former FBI examiner working for the New York Police Department, and I was trained in one day to beat it. Uh, essentially all you need to know, Sir David, is that each of us, when we lie, uh, has different tra have different traits. Some people's heart rate goes up, some people's sweat response goes up. They're all individually different. So actually ascribing any of the things that a lie detector test measures to that of deception is simply false. And I would think that a, a 1998 Supreme Court decision saying that they're no more reliable than a toss of a coin is all you need to just discard them. If everything you say is proved to be the case, mm -hmm. then I'm absolutely certain the Home Office then will not go forward with this plan to use lie detector tests. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.